All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We are recording this on March 6th and have a great episode coming for you talking account abstraction with Matter Labs and Argent. Uh, but before we get into the interview today, we are joined by Westy and Ren, who have just returned from ETH Denver. Uh, so, you know, looking but look at looking at the market this week, we see ETH and Bitcoin have pulled back about five or so percent, but we have this great excuse uh, to blame it on a major crypto conference. Uh, so Westy and Ren, I know you guys were out there repping the BlockWorks research team, uh, and I'd love to get a little, a, maybe a brief overview, just like what were the vibes like at this conference? How are people, uh, you know, how are they acting? Was it maybe different than we've seen over the past six to 12 months? Uh, how was how the overall feeling there? Maybe I'll toss it to you first, Ren. Yeah, definitely. So Wesley and I were there for the main conference. As far as a conference and vibes go, pretty immaculate, to be honest. Energy was high. Every side event that you went to was 10x oversubscribed. The main conference was packed full of people. And when I say packed, I mean like probably 5,000 people stuffed into that warehouse to the point where you basically had zero cell service uh, just because there were so many people there. And I think it was very sort of inspiring seeing that even the depths of a bear market, there were so many builders, VCs, protocols, founders, everyone congregating on a single location, right? And I think ETH Denver is one of the better events out there because it's very dev and technical heavy. And so you really see the amount of work being done behind the scenes at a conference like this, where everybody comes off the shelves and talks about the progress they've made. And that, you know, you have to say the industry is still thriving. People are staying, no one's leaving. And it paints quite a good picture for the days ahead. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. Like as soon as you stepped into the building, you could just feel the energy. Like as Ren said, there was like 5,000 people at once in this place all walking around and, and it didn't feel like a bear market type of conference in that way. But at the same time, it did in terms of the conversations you had where a lot of them were focused more on like the fundamentals of things, uh, like where we're going as a space, as opposed to a lot of like the pumpamentals. Like, yeah, a lot of these projects did try and attach like CK, which is the, the newest narrative, but at the same time, it didn't feel like that, like euphoria that you would normally get at the top of a cycle. Um, but at the same time, there's, yeah, a lot of energy, a lot of passion for the industry. And I know I can say I had a lot of fantastic conversations with a lot of these builders uh, over the past few days. Yeah, nothing, uh, nothing will make you refocus on fundamentals like negative price action. We know that's a, a great quote from Zero X Pipples himself. But uh, any any particular speakers that you saw that you were like, wow, that's a huge, huge thing I can take away from this conference. Like, you know, so-and-so did such a good job breaking down maybe this complex topic or uh, a new innovation that is coming to the space. Yeah, definitely one that stands apart from the rest. I mean, he's been talking of the town for the past few months has been Shuram from Eigenlayer. He was probably one of the most popular uh, guys throughout the whole of ETH Denver. And most of these speakers show up at like five different talks every single day. I'm not even sure how they appear at so many places simultaneously, but Shriram managed to do it. Um, if you talk to him in real life, the guy's super nice and has a very clear vision for what he wants Eigenlayer to do, right? Increasing the vector for permissionless innovation. And you do that by leveraging the security of Eve. And of course he gave that usual talk. There were some points that sort of, as you walked around the room, People, whether that's investors or VCs, still had questions on whether that's about, for example, how the slashing works, 
how will it be distributed? Will institutions really want to set to withdraw credentials to an eigenlayer smart contract? Which I think are all valid questions. And there were some good conversations around that. Yeah, we had we had Sriram on the pod. Let's see. He was one of our first guests, maybe in the first 10 episodes. So that was that's a great episode. We'll throw that in the show notes just to get you caught up on all things eigenlayer. Uh, but it's great to hear that you know when we spoke to him, he was such a like a great big personality, and it's it's cool to see that that was the case. Uh, in real life as well. And speaking of in real life, I hear he's uh, a little taller than expected. Is is this true, Ren? Can you confirm? He is pretty tall, but also I'm not that tall. So most people at Eve Denver were taller than me. But yeah, he is decently tall. Oh, I love to hear it. I love to hear it. Yeah, no, I, I think one of the, the more interesting points with, with Eigenlayer is really how they're going to deal with uh, the slashing mechanism, as you say. I know on our podcast, he mentioned this insurance bond mechanism, uh, which really haven't seen too much clarity come out around. Did, did that get brought up at all? Or is that still an idea that you know that they're, if they're pursuing that? So we did specifically ask him that question. And he also said that ZeroX research is probably one of the only times that he's brought that mechanism up. We pushed a little. He didn't want to give that much information because I think he didn't want people to speculate on it. He really wanted the narrative to be focused on eigenlayer as sort of like a gener generic use case for what is like protocols to spin up their security. And so, yeah, he did sort of like brush us aside very casually when we pushed him on that insurance bond mechanism. I know he talked a lot on our episode about permissionless innovation. And Ren, you mentioned that he said that a bunch at the actual conference. But did he also talk about, uh, in more depth, I guess, uh, the concept of a, a market price for a decentralized validator set? Because that was like one of the more interesting pieces that I took away from our conversation. I don't think I mentioned, I don't think I uh, heard him mention anything specifically about that. A lot of, so the main events that Shiram was at was an event called Shared Security Summit. It was sort of like a gigabrain day with, a lot of big brain researchers from like Eigenlayer, Babylon, all of like the Eve info people, like John Charbonneau was there. And I don't think um, there was a lot of conversation about like the pricing of decentralization. It was sort of how do we get these protocols security to sort of interact with each other and how do we leverage that to sort of build blockchain, right? It was more of a grand vision um, event rather than like getting to the nitty gritty. What's your take on that, Sam, though? Do you think there will be a time where solo staked validators will uh, kind of sell at a premium to something like a, a staking derivative if you were going to use Eigenlayer for um, like building out an application? Yeah, I think I, it makes a lot of sense for something like a, that really needs to be truly decentralized. So like a, a Thor chain or a Tornado Cash or something along those lines that you know decentralization is priority number one. So I could see that becoming uh, a big thing with Eigenlayer of people being like, hey, no staking derivatives, no staking consortiums or, or what, what have you. Just like we want at-home validators to, to secure our chain for max decentralization purposes. I got a dumb question on this too. And Westy, you can probably correct me pretty, pretty much immediately here. But like, so when you think about something like Eigenlayer, they're using like this most commonly probably will be uh, these liquid staking derivative tokens. Like, could they theoretically use like USDC or some stablecoin for this same exact purpose? Or is there something inherently uh, tied to the fact that it is a, a Ethereum staking derivative, which is securing the Ethereum network? 
like well, if you because essentially what you're doing is putting value at stake to be slashed to make commitments a thing very similar to a, a proof of stake network right so why does eigenlayer need to be built around staked eth as opposed to another asset that holds value yeah i actually don't know the answer to that question i believe it has something to do with that you already have something up for stake and you're like putting up for additional slashing risk. Um, I'm sure something could come along where you, you leverage your USDC, but at the same time, like that's managed by a centralized entity. You could like easily manipulate things in the back end. Um, and so to have like a sort of completely decentralized trust layer that you're utilizing, I'm sure it goes a long way in terms of the security. But as far as the, far as the specifics are concerned, yeah, I'm not sure why you'd necessarily need to use ETH over something else that has a large market cap. I feel like to, to piggyback off what you said, Westy, just no one would want to run a decentralized chain, you know, with the staking asset being USDC or Tether, given the, the regulatory risk, the custody risk, et cetera. Uh, associated with those two assets. So I feel like ETH is really the only logical choice because it's the only decentralized asset uh, with the largest market cap. And then there's also probably a lot of, you know, developers speak that we don't understand that uh, it, it plays a pretty key role in terms of like ease of deploying contracts, developer tooling, et cetera. Yeah, no, that actually makes a ton of sense. And I guess if you like think about what is the the most natural uh crypto asset it, it would be something like a base layer asset like ethereum or avalanche etc um so that's yeah no, i think that's actually exactly the reason it is really centered around decentralization and giving uh, the ability to build on top of that decentralization i feel like we also saw a lot over the weekend about uh was it called roll kit i i'm still catching up from the weekend given it's a monday but you know different stuff with uh sovereign rollups on bitcoin and using bitcoin as their da layer um, I, did you guys hear anything about that at, at ETH Denver? Is that just something that's floating around Twitter over the weekend? Yeah, no, I, it's not something I heard at ETH Denver. Um, who was also at the Shared Security Summit was Babylon, which is like within Cosmos using Bitcoin as a checkpoint for additional security, um, which I think is in sort of the same realm as like utilizing Bitcoin in some way, shape or form. Um, and so I think that's like an increasing narrative is how do we actually utilize Bitcoin security in other ways beyond just like using the Bitcoin blockchain. And I think ordinals have really sort of like spun that up in people to realize, okay, we can do a lot more with Bitcoin than just send Bitcoin from one address to another. Yeah, the those sovereign rollups are fairly interesting, right? Because you know they kind of got a little bit advertised as like a, a true L two uh, built on top of Ethereum, but in my understanding, is uh, it's not like technically an L two again because it's using that like checkpointing technology uh, as a as opposed to fully inheriting the security of the L one that it's settling to. Uh, but there was actually uh, a GP from High Framework uh, actually had a great take on this, and it was like basically just saying. You know, let's not like battle whether or not that this is like a true L2 or whatnot. Let's just like, you know, embrace the fact that we're like pushing into, into something we haven't pushed into before and kind of expanding the bounds of experimentation, which is really something I always like to see happening in this space, uh, especially given its its tendencies to, you know, kind of want to have that forking mentality and just, you know, recycling the same projects that have existed before. So personally, I'm excited for this. 
Yeah, Westy, actually, I think there's a lot of people who don't know what sovereign rollups are. Are you able to give us a little Eli 5 on what they are and, and whether or not you're bullish on them? Yeah, I can give a little quick explanation. So, as you know, with like modular blockchains, it splits up uh, execution, settlement, consensus, and data availability. And for something like a, a normal rollup, you basically have just execution on the rollup, and the other functions are sort of given to another uh, entity. But in the case of sovereign rollups, uh, the only thing you're essentially offloading is data availability. And so on your layer, you still have uh, the ability to settle. And like some people don't really think it's like a layer two because you don't have a trust minimized bridge going from uh, the rollup to the L1. Um, but at the same time, you're using the, the DA uh, guarantees of that network. And I know Celestia is building with sovereign rollups in mind because they're like a hyper scaled DA layer. Um, and so they're focusing just on that and allowing these sovereign rollups to almost act like L1s built on uh, Celestia. And so I think it's going to be one of the like bigger areas for innovation, especially as Celestia comes out later this year. Westy, we'll keep you on the uh, on the on the on the hot seat here. And uh, you know, Ren's major takeaway was the eigenlayer. Uh, you know, founder himself, Sriram, and and all these innovations that are coming along with that, which you know really isn't too surprising given how hot that's been on on CT over the last couple of months. Honestly, uh, so not even just weeks. But uh, what's your major takeaway? What's something that you kind of walked away with thinking about differently uh, or are really excited about? Yeah. So a lot of my conversations, which I didn't think this is going to be the case going into it, but a lot of what I talked about was MEV specifically. Um, so I think one sort of area in which MEV is evolving is in the case of private order flow, which I've talked about in a recent Xerox research podcast. Um, if done incorrectly, it could be a pretty centralizing force to the network, but there's a lot of uh, these protocols such as Flashbots with their new MEV share, as well as Rook, which have like more decentralized versions of private order flow, where you still have an auction system for searchers and block builders, except the MEV rather than going to the validators goes back to either the user or the wallet, um, whatever sends the, that RPC to the private uh, RPC uh, node. Um, and I think this is going to be a really, really big narrative going forward. There's definitely in a lot of my conversations is how do these entities compete for order flow? Um, I think there's going to be a lot of battles over the wallets specifically. So something like Rook or Flashbots can partner with MetaMask, for instance. They are like the largest source of order flow that goes through the Infura RPC via MetaMask. And so if one of these private order flow um, protocols can plug into MetaMask, that's going to be a huge revenue driver um, and will likely like change the MEV landscape where a lot of MEV will be extracted through these protocols instead of going back to validators. And so I think fighting for private order flow is going to be a big narrative in the next year or two. I also saw a really good talk from Tarun on cross-chain MEV and what that actually looks like in practice. And it's obviously extremely difficult uh, because you have to worry about the gas fees on the current chain, the gas fees on the chain that you need to, to arbitrage to, as well as you could have gas fees on the, the chain you're bridging to actually changed 
with the first transaction you did because you could be uh, trying to arbitrage the, the token uses gas. And so, yeah, it was a really um, good presentation from Tarun. Um, the Arbitrum MEV situation was something I talked about with uh, the Arbitrum folks for a while, and they're thinking through a solution where you have like a delay period um, so that like all searchers have access to the same transactions while also having that uh, auction mechanism, which is a lot better than the proof of work they're going to implement, as well as had an interesting conversation with uh, Tim from Relic about fraud-proof MEV, as he called it, um, where essentially you could have really sophisticated searchers who are able to issue fraud proofs uh, in the exact block that you have some sort of uh, like failed transaction on an optimistic rollup and able to like capture some value there. Um, so yeah, I had a lot of like really big brain, interesting conversations around MEV and it's definitely things that I'm going to be thinking about for the next probably a month or two is like, how does the MEV space evolve? Cause it's really like, uh, like a really long rabbit hole you could go down. All right. Well, you cheated because you just gave me like four, but they're all bundled into MEV. So I'll let it slide. But if we go back to the first one uh, and private order flow, like if I'm a user, like how does this, how does this affect me? Do I care that um, my, like the route my order is taking is slightly different? Um, you know, like, does that impact my privacy or am I just overall getting a better transaction? So price. So maybe I'm just happy about that. Like, how does it look like for the user? Yeah, it's a good question. So it's actually much better from the user's perspective. You can think of it like Robinhood now that has sort of private order flow to Citadel and that helps them get like no fees on their transaction as well as better pricing. But at the same time, Citadel is able to extract value uh, by being able to see your order flow. It acts in a similar way where uh, for the user, you can think Potentially, maybe they get rebates based on the amount of MVP that was, that was extracted. Maybe they have fee-less um, trades. So maybe like Uniswap partners with Rook and they have sort of a private flow um, type of model. And all of a sudden they say, hey, we actually have 0% fees or very minimal fees. Um, but really it's because they extract MEV and that private order flow makes its way back to users. And so from like a user standpoint, you're more likely to go through some sort of private order flow because you're able to have more value. Whereas in like another situation, the MEV makes its way to validators. And so obviously if you're the user, you're going to want that value and not, not giving it to somebody else. So it seems like there's this really interesting dynamic of like where MEV value will flow to because today it is the validators, but tomorrow it sounds like it's in going to increasingly become to the protocols and then ultimately back to the users, uh, which kind of like brings in uh, an interesting point around ETH security, right? Because the MEV does flow to validators and that is an incentive to stake ETH and participate in network security. Do you think there's a risk to the end state of Ethereum if all of the MEV starts flowing elsewhere? And do you think like MEV will in, like exist on the base layer uh, into perpetuity or eventually just kind of phase out um, from things like private order flow or maybe uh, transaction activity moving to L2s? Great questions. Um, first of all, no, I don't think it's a problem for the security of the network in the same way that a lot of these E3 researchers are trying to push for MEV burn which would burn the MEV as opposed to giving it to validators, which is sort of giving it to all ETH holders as opposed to just the validators. 
you can think of it in like a similar way where like they actually want there to be less incentives to stake because that means less emissions of ETH. And there's really like a marginal uh, difference. Like once you get enough validators, the next validator isn't really super important for the overall security of the network. So I think it'll be fine in terms of security. Um, but I think the second question, like, yeah, I agree. Like MEV, I think in terms of staking rewards, it's going to be a very, very small amount of the staking rewards in L1, given that one activity is going to be moving to these L2s as opposed to the base layer, as well as, yeah, like MEV is going to be extracted through private order flow, I think, in a large chunk of it, as opposed to going actually to validators. So over the long run, I don't see MEV as like a large source of income for ETH stakers. Yeah, that makes sense. And the data kind of matches up with what you uh, what you just said, right? I just pulled up our Ethereum dashboard uh, on Dune and the total ETH that has flown to ETH stakers in 2023 is around 241,000 ETH um, and 44,000 of that has been through MEV payments itself. So about 12 and a half percent or so. Uh, so yeah, pretty interesting. Makes a lot of sense there. Uh, Ren, were you going to add anything to that? No, I was just going to add that if you went to ETH Denver, I think it became pretty clear that most of the smartest guys within the crypto space are working on MEV. Everyone that's in that space is either super talented, super curious, or just super smart. And it was sort of like a common sentiment that there was still a lot of incentive mechanisms to figure out around MEV, right? Even though, like, say, Flashbots has done a lot of work in the past year, people still see it as more or less a completely black box, right? Because, for example, as more blockchain ecosystems come online, cross-domain arbitrages become more prevalent, or, for example, people start doing more statistical arbitrage-type MEV. And so there is still a lot of excitement and undiscovered areas in the space. And I think... A few other interesting things that we sort of heard from a few searchers that we talked to is A, the number of searchers out there is still pretty small, or at least smaller than Wesley and I thought. Um, sort of like rough numbers that we had were maybe around 20 to 40. And so it's not as much as one might think, right? I think the number that Wesley and I had initially was 100 searchers or so. Um, that's probably the same situation on the builder side. And second of all, that... Um, there are still sort of like niche MEV opportunities out there, you know. Of course, there's like very common ones, such as like backrunning, sandwich attacks, like uh, Dex and like Sex uh, arbitrage. But there are still very profitable MEV opportunities if you're really willing to dig into sort of like how the contracts work or sort of looking the white papers and understanding this, these granular inefficiencies. Yeah, as Ren said, I think one really cool like aspect of MEV that's going to evolve is statistical arbitrage or like statistical MEV as they might call it, where you have something like say, which has batches built into like it, it's a uh, um, blockchain essentially for like all of its swaps. Um, really you, there is no MEV you can really extract in a single block. So as a result, you're probably going to see a lot more sort of statistical arbitrage or rather than like having an explicit, um, profit and loss in that block, you just, you base it off of your expected value um, on the next block. And so I think a lot of stuff along those lines is going to result. And yeah, like I said, the MEV is like such a rabbit hole you can go down. 
For real, it sounds like it. I'm so jealous I wasn't out there. Dan, you were at least in uh, in Brack, so you were you were out west and got to enjoy it at least. I was still stuck uh, in Ohio, but I'm curious, what was the sentiment at ETH Denver uh, around ZK EVMs? Because if you go on Twitter, you think that's like Ethereum being reborn, but is it actually all the hype that that we see on Twitter, or is it um, not quite as much hype as you would have expected? I would say walking around uh, East Denver and all of the side events, ZK was definitely talk of the town, right? Sure, you had like um, a lot of attention being paid to like optimistic rollups because of like Coinbase's base and Arbitrum, but there were so many ZK events and ZK talks that um, I couldn't like keep track of them. And also a lot of like the VCs, the funds, the builders, like everyone was interested in ZK, you know, it's sort of like that meme that if you put ZK in your name, your valuation just goes up by a hundred million. That kind of felt like <laughs> the vibe was at ETH Denver. So still a very um, exciting space. I think some of the general questions had, um, some of the general conversations around ETH Denver I had about ZK was that A, will like those ecosystems be built out in time before optimistic world of sort of like gain too far of a deed? B, are people more interested in sort of like ZK as like an infrastructure tech as in like ZK EVM or more so as ZK technology that enables sort of like real world use cases, right? Whether that's like a decentralized identity or like uh, zero knowledge data of some sort. And so I think those are the two main points for ZK. I think it was funny that Polygon, like in their booth, they had the first ZK EVM in like big letters and like the ZK sync booth wasn't too far away. Like you could see it from their table and the scroll one was right around the corner. Like the fight was going on in real time. And yeah, that was what was funny to me. But yeah, Ren, Ren nailed it on the head. Love that. Was there any protocol that you went in not knowing about that maybe you talked to their team or it was kind of like the talk of the town that made you end up, you know, diving into the docs that you're now like, okay, this is something that I'm going to pay attention to over the next six to 12 months. I haven't dove into the docs yet, but there is one protocol that I'm really excited about. I'll give some context first. So Wesley and I were at a MEV sort of event on Saturday night and we just showed up at this table. We started talking to this guy. At first we started talking to him about gas price derivatives, right? So we started talking about what's a good way to design the mechanism. Is it a perpetual future with a funding rate? But then we sort of talked about how the funding rate won't be sensitive enough to gas by changes. And then out of nowhere, this guy comes along. And of course it's none other than Dan Robinson from Paradigm. And Wesley and I were like, okay. Um, so we we're having a really great conversation about gas price derivatives. And Dan Robinson suggested, for example, you could fork Squeef, which is squared ETH, um, a power perpetual on ETH, to and apply that to gas price derivatives. Okay. And then Dan Robinson goes to the guy next to us that Wesley and I has been talking for quite a while. And then we realized that he was a paradigm CTF winner for 2022. And for a second there, we were like, okay, where else in the world will you be able to sort of get in an environment like this where you talk to two gigabrains within the space. I mean, Paradigm CTF winner uh, and like Paradigm researcher, it's kind of crazy. Okay, but anyway, back to Dan's question. The one protocol that I was talking about is the Reddit protocol. So essentially, they're going to use ZK Snarks to give smart contracts access to all of Ethereum's historical state. 
and I'm still reading into the docs. I may not be doing the perfect explanation here, so apologize. Apologies to Tim Becker first. But uh, here's a few practical examples that they state on the website. Right? For example, revolutionizing on-chain identity. You can securely validate any past activity on the blockchain from account age to contract inter interactions, token amounts, and more. So in the past, if someone was doing an airdrop, right, it could just be either someone putting up a spreadsheet and airdropping tokens to wallet addresses or someone just looking at like historical transactions. Right? There's no way to securely validate that and Reddit protocol enables that. Another example would be historical price oracles. Reddit protocol allows you to drop external off-chain relayers and create trustless fully on-chain price oracles for any on-chain data, including DEX prices, block parameters, for example, gas prices and more. So when I first talked to Tim Becker at Reddit Protocol, my first thought was like, you know, why was this needed? You can sort of like recreate Ethereum state if you want to you just go into the block explorer, you pass the transactions and you sort of like backtrack the state. But then I realized that there is a fundamental difference between doing that and being able to validate that in a trustless manner. And I'm not smart enough to have figured out all of the use cases yet, but Tim Becker definitely explained some very exciting use cases that night. That's a new one. I've never heard of Relic Protocol. We'll put the uh, the link to that website in the description as well so you guys can check it out with us. Um, but that's pretty cool. And I, I love your the context you provided around that, right? Like, you know, you're just having a casual conversation. Well, I guess casual conversation about gas price derivatives probably doesn't exist. But uh, nonetheless, you're just having some nerds, nerd conversations and up walks Dan Robinson. That's awesome. I'm glad you guys had such a, such a great time in East Denver uh, and were able to kind of impart some of that knowledge that you picked up on us as well. Uh, but without further ado, it's probably a good time to hop to our interview with Matter Labs uh, and Argent covering all things account abstraction. I cannot recommend enough for you guys to all check out blockworksresearch.com. If you go over to the research tab and toggle free research, you're going to get access to some of the best free reports in the industry. And if you want to subscribe to Blockworks Research, you can do so using 0x research 10 at checkout in order to receive $250 off. And you can also sign up to our free newsletter if you want to just get a little taste where we give alpha on governance, degen trade ideas, market commentary, charts of the day, etc. Kind of get you caught up to speed on everything you need to know in the market within five, 10 minutes. Give us a follow at Blockworks Res, Blockworks R-E-S on Twitter. We'll release our new reports during the week. And even if you uh, don't have access to the reports, you're not a paid subscriber, you can still check out the topics we're writing about and get a, a little bit of a brief insight into what uh, the contents of the report is about. If you want to know a little bit more how we think on the data side of things, head over to our Dune public account. We have four dashboards live there for free. The revolution will not be quarterly reported, so definitely check those out and let's kick it over to the interview. All right, we've got a great episode today. We've got Alex from Matter Labs, the team behind ZK Sync and uh, the ZK EVM era. Uh, and then Julian from Argent, the company behind one of the most cutting edge wallets uh, in, in the entire industry. So uh, thanks so much for joining, guys. We're excited to have this conversation around account abstraction, kind of a hot topic nowadays. But first, Alex, I kind of wanted to kick it over to you to get a, um, an update on ERA and where you guys are at in the process of launching. Sure. Thank you for having us here. It's a pleasure. Uh, ERA is doing really great. We, we uh, recently opened the mainnet to developers to start deploying applications. At ETH Denver, we had a chance to open it to the first users. The uh, ETH Denver food truck experience was powered by Zikis and Kara. It, it went smoothly without a, like, you know, like no, uh, no, um, 
friction uh, was really great because of native account abstraction that was implemented in Nera from day one. Uh, so users did not have to pay the fees. It was completely gasless and very easy to use. Uh, I'm happy to talk more about this topic. Yeah, and then Julian, you mind sharing just uh, some things about Argent, what you're working on, and maybe how you're uh, partnering with Era uh, and kind of the synergies there? Sure. Uh, I mean, at, at Argent, we've been building smart contract wallet for you know for five years, uh, starting on, on Ethereum L1, uh, and then we've been waiting for a couple of years to have a, a rollup, you know, a, a layer two that would scale, and at the same time that would make uh, our model native, and that's exactly what you know zk Sing Era is providing. Uh, as well as Starknet, so we've been really focusing on these two layer twos, uh, making sure we can, you know, build uh, amazing user experience by leveraging account abstraction. That's super interesting. I noticed that you kind of picked the two uh, zk EVMs that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got uh, like one that's kind of using a compiler method and taking high-level source code and and compiling it into Solidity, and then you've got Starkware, which is using uh, Cairo, a completely different language altogether. So is there any reasoning behind uh, choosing these two to, to, to partner with in particular outside of the ones achieve, like hoping to achieve more, I guess, type one or type two equivalents in the words of Vitalik? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the clear differentiator of, of both Starknet and, and ZK Singera is that they support native account abstraction. Uh, and that for us was really, you know, super important. There's a lot of talk recently around ERC4337, which is one way to enable some form of account abstraction at the application level. Uh, but that's what we've been doing at Argent, you know, for five years. So our smart contract wallet on Ethereum, they are, from a user's point of view, strictly equivalent than what 4337 will get you. Uh, and I mean, that's an amazing achievement. But at the same time, what we've realized over the years is that uh, the ecosystem is still built around EOS. And so if you build like an abstraction at the application layer, I mean, you can build great products, but your products will never be compatible with 100% of the dApps because there will always be dApp developers that don't think about smart contract wallet and that kind of are stuck in that eerie paradigm. Uh, while with ZK Sync and Starknet, because they have native account abstraction, your model, our model is the is the, the default model in a sense, and that guarantees us, you know, 100% compatibility with the DApps, which of course is is essential. So there's a lot of ZK EVMs. There's a lot of you know optimistic rollups that are great in terms of scaling, uh, but it, when it comes to being able to make our model native and make sure we can build really the best experience for users, you know, choosing Starknet uh, and ZK Sync era was a, a no-brainer. Do you think you guys could start by maybe going a little bit more high level and explaining exactly what account abstraction is and maybe starting with Ethereum as an account-based blockchain with EOAs and contract accounts? Sure. <clears throat> I mean, I'll, I'll get be happy to start and then Alex, feel free to, to jump in. Um, I mean, as people know, there's two types of accounts on Ethereum. You have externally owned accounts, which can trigger transaction, and then you have smart contract accounts that can contain logic. Uh, but unfortunately, there's no account on Ethereum that can both trigger transaction and, and pay transaction fees and at the same time contain logic. Uh, and so as a user, you're always required to start with a new way. The object that you have and that you use to, to interact with the blockchain is always you know, a new way. And the problem with EOAs is that their account model has been hard-coded really in the EVM uh, in such a way that the account is completely coupled with a private key that I like to call a signer. And that's why when you, you create an account, you're forced to back up a seed phrase. 
for example, which is a way to say you're writing down that private key on a piece of paper. So on Ethereum, the accounts that users manipulate, they are completely coupled to that signer, that cryptographic object, in such a way that if you lose that, that object, you basically lose everything. And if I have your signer, I have your private key, I have everything. And all that logic is outcoded in the EVM. And that's, of course, as we've witnessed you know, over the past five or six years, this is really hard for, for users. Even us, I would say, as expert early adopters, we do make mistakes. Sometimes we go on the wrong website and, you know, our seed phrase is compromised or we just lose our seed phrase. We lose our account. So this user experience is, is of course, you know, uh, very complicated. And we've believed at Argent from a long time that this would never, you know, scale and reach mass adoption. Account abstraction, on the other hand, is the ability to program your account. So again, taking a step back, an account on Ethereum, it does four things. It, it validates the transaction. It executes the transaction. It pays the fees to the miner, and it makes sure there's no replay attack. You cannot play the same transaction twice. So these are really the four functionalities of an account. On DVM, today, everything is outcoded. With account abstraction, you can really program these four functionalities because your account is a smart contract. So you can really start putting logic on how a transaction is validated, how a transaction will be executed, executed, executed sorry, and how the fee will be paid to the miner. And so in terms of validation, that means that you can choose a different elliptic curve. You can choose a different signature scheme. Maybe you want your transaction to be validated by you know, two out of three uh, signers, making it a native multisig. If you think of the execution, if you can program it, that means you can start doing stuff like multicalls, executing a sequence of operation in one transaction. And if, and if it comes to paying the transaction fee, if you abstract that, then you can start letting someone else paying for your transaction. And that's what Paymaster do. So really account abstraction for me is really the ability to program the functionalities of your account and that opens a completely new design space. And I, I can add to this the, uh, maybe I, I can compare the um, EAP4337, which is now implemented on, on Ethereum mainnet versus native account abstraction of layer twos. With EAP4337, we're dealing with basically just a standard, a convention on how contracts can be repaying the gas fees to the centralized, more or less, actors who will be submitting transactions on the user behalf. Uh, so the the uh, there are multiple problems with this approach. Like first of all, it's great that Ethereum has taken a step forward to implement it, and we have something now on mainnet that is more or less standardized. Uh, Argent was on the forefront, and they they were doing this meta transaction. Uh, for quite a while and now more projects can join and do something on mainnet. Uh, but uh, the uh, first problem is you introduce trust assumptions, you introduce new centralized actors. Even if, if there's gonna be some decentralized marketplace, uh, then you have to deal with the security properties, censorship resistant properties of this marketplace. So instead of just having dealing you know, with the wallet vendor and the blockchain itself, you have to depend now on some parties to submit transactions for you. And the second problem is that, uh, as uh, Julian mentioned before, the protocols are not um, uh, designed for interacting with, with these types of accounts. And like many things will just break because the transaction origin will deviate from the, from the account that is actually initiating the action. So like some things will not function properly. Uh, in this paradigm, uh, but, but there are there are more problems with the protocol uh, implementation uh, per se, like uh, the way uh, 
ERC20 is structured and, and other protocols that we many protocols are doing a C recover and relying on on certain way. Like they expect the accounts to be EOA, so they expect that the address is actually a cryptographically valid um, reflection of a of a private key on, on the public key space, and uh, that you can be you, you can verify that this contract. But I would say one really big problem on Ethereum with account abstraction implemented in a way uh, like AP four three three seven is the cost. It's not just more expensive to transact because it's layer one, and we know that layer one is expensive and cannot really accommodate the the uh, search of users that we expect with uh, uh, L2s where the, the fees are much cheaper. Account transaction implemented in this way makes the transactions even more expensive because you have to pass the uh, the separate signature. So you, you have to pay for the original transaction for the initiation of the call. In addition to that, you have to pay for providing all the data uh, and verifying all the data on layer one uh, of, of this new transaction, like maybe an extended signature scheme, which is which can be relatively large. Maybe you want to pass some more uh, metadata for the transaction. You have to pass the, the address, you know, like all, all the normal transaction information wrapped in some envelope to be passed to the smart contract. On top of that, you have to pay for the execution, so you have to be sending tokens back. So all of this increases the transaction cost multiple times. Whereas if you look at the native implementation uh, of account abstraction at ZK Sync, for example, uh, you will we have uh, a really interesting approach to data availability, and we are only publishing state diffs and not the transaction inputs on the rollup data. And one of the decisions or one of the factors where we went for this decision was that it makes um, abstracted accounts and transactions on abstracted accounts much cheaper. So essentially, the, the costs of transactions with account abstractions does not deviate from the cost of normal transactions. You're eventually only paying for the actual things that are happening on a blockchain. You know, you, you make a call to Uniswap to trade some tokens, you will only be paying for trading these tokens, not for all this meta information, not for all the additional uh, checks, guards, uh, signature verification, etc. Not on blockchain, at least. You will be still paying for them in the proof generation, but the proof generation is going to be negligibly cheap. It's going to be very, very inexpensive. The bottleneck of scalability of L2s will, will for, for observable time, remain the on-chain data. So it sounds like, you know, ZK Sync has really taken an approach that eh, putting account abstraction like in directly in the base layer, making it native to the protocol, whereas Ethereum, you know, didn't do that. Uh, and much of that is really uh, the, the ecosystem we see today has just kind of been built off an unfinished protocol. And so we have these uh, shortcomings, if you will, of, you know, protocols will likely have to adapt and change to to you know, make themselves more relevant in, in the new era uh, once this EIP gets introduced. But given the fact that it's more expensive to generate these transactions, do you think it's practical to have account abstraction uh, at the Ethereum L1? Or is this really just something that's better suited for uh, ZK Sync and other L2s to be utilizing? I generally think that the uh, majority of the users will be transacting on layer twos uh, in the near time and the activity will, like, like the, almost the entire activity will migrate from layer one to layer twos. 
um, the cost is one major and huge factor and scalability, just the sheer number of users and transactions you can process at layer two, uh, but also the fact that uh, L2s have the freedom to innovate, whereas Ethereum rightly must take a much more careful, much slower approach. It's, it's much more prudent for Ethereum to, uh, to have the layer twos come up with new ideas, bottle test them at the new playground, and then only adopt the things that have been uh, verified by, by real usage. So in, in this sense, uh, L2s can just move faster than L1, which is normal and expected. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. And actually, at Argent, that's what you know we've been advocating for more than a year is that account abstraction should you know start at in layer twos, exactly for the reason that that you know Alex mentioned layer twos. They are kind of starting as a blank page. And I like the word you use. You say Ethereum, the protocol is unfinished. And actually, people are getting excited about account abstraction, but Ethereum was always meant to have account abstraction. If you look at the roadmap, Vitalik started talking about account abstraction in 2015. There's the first EIP, like early 2016, I think. So that was always part of the roadmap. But of course, Ethereum was such a complex project that you know they needed to start simple in some places. But it was always meant to have native account abstraction, full full account abstraction, like it's implemented on on zk era. That was always the plan. But of course, they started simple with DOA, and then you start building, and then you have you know a lot of legacy, there's a lot of, lot at stake. I mean, there's a lot of funds on Ethereum and then making such a fundamental change becomes extremely complex. There's always something more important to do uh, before doing that. And that's, that's completely normal. Uh, but then again, no, we are at, I mean, at a very exciting time where layer twos are picking up. I think we have all these years of learning from the EVM and from Ethereum. And I think we shouldn't shy away of, of updating the things that you know should be updated. And I think, uh, while five years ago when we started at Argent, people thought we were a bit crazy making smart contract wallet. I think now today, kind of everybody agrees that this is the solution. You know, account abstraction is not a question of, you know, if it's a question of, of when. Uh, and I believe clearly the, the, the shortest path to make that happen on the entire Ethereum ecosystem is to do that on layer twos. As Alex mentioned, because layer twos can innovate, they can, you know, test. A good example of that is actually ZK Singh contributing to ERC4337 because they, the way they implemented account abstraction at the protocol level was heavily inspired by 4337. And so they realized that they could relax some of the constraints with respect to the validation phase and that actually fueled back ERC4337, which included them. So I, I do think this is the right way to go. We should, as an ecosystem, push more layer twos to really you know, be bold and actually go where we know we have to go because now is the right time. If layer twos wait two or three years to start thinking about native, native account abstraction, they will be in the position that Ethereum is today, meaning that they will have a lot of legacy, there will be a lot of stake, and it, become, it will become increasingly, increasingly more complicated for them to make that transition. So I think we have really a window of opportunity uh, to make that happen. Some, you know, some layer twos, you know, were brave enough to go down that road, uh, which is great. But I think more layer twos should embrace that. And then we can make sure to bring all that, that expertise and at some point bring it back to, the, uh, to, to Ethereum. But again, kind of like Alex, I don't even know if bringing that to Ethereum is actually needed because I kind of agree that, the, I mean, most normal users, the, the next wave of users will be on layer twos, not on layer one. So in the end, if it comes back to Ethereum, for me, is not that important. What's important is that it comes back to the EVM. 
because there are a lot of layer twos that you know are EVM equivalent. So it is more important for me to have a kind of abstraction in optimism, arbitrum, and so on than actually on, on layer one. Yeah, strong agree there. We're already kind of seeing the the first real wave of L2 adoption right now with like total transactions between some of the leading rollups surpassing Ethereum, which is super, super encouraging and exciting to see. But something with account abstraction that I haven't been able to figure out is as an L2, you still need to pay your L1 settlement costs in ETH. So how does that actually look under the hood uh, if you know you as a user are paying uh, for transaction fees in USDC or some other token, how does that uh, the the settlement cost actually flow to the base layer for settlement? Um, so th that will mean that the validators who accept the transaction have to convert the the proceeds into ETH somehow. So the, the one simple way to do it is to use uh, liquidity inside an L2 and use automated liquidity, uh, like automated market makers to to convert all of these proceeds just in time. Uh, you, you always have a slight delay between the accepting of the transaction and the actual payment of the fees. So you, you kind of, because you, you need to wait for the block to complete, you need to wait for the zero knowledge proof to be generated and for the transaction to happen in Ethereum. Um, and so since you're accepting the some slight risk of fluctuations of the price anyway, you can do it at the last step. So you can you can process many transactions and then batch convert them into the ether and then pay the fees. Okay, makes sense. That's what my intuition was was leading me to. Now, I also hear a lot of things in terms of social recovery, like with email addresses or or maybe two FA gated text messages or something of the sorts. But it kind of scares me as a user to think that maybe I'm not in full control of my uh, my seed phrase. Um, so, is there any security trade-offs with that come with account abstraction that users should be aware of? Aware of, or is that something that you guys have kind of thought about very thoroughly? So, I think with any technology, you need you know you need to think about about security for sure. But what is clear is that, for example, you take the example of social recovery. We've been doing social recovery on Argent since 2018. You know, at some point, we're securing more than a billion dollars. We have users that have 50 plus millions on Arjun that actually lost their phone. But with social recovery, they were fully in control and they were guaranteed to get to get that access. So I do think social recovery with that, in that respect for me, is it's, it's much more secure actually than a seed phrase. It's easy to lose a seed phrase. While social recovery, you are you control, you know, who will help you for that recovery. Maybe to, to, to help, you know, uh, people understand if your account is a smart contract, that means you can start, you know, to put custom logic. And the idea of social recovery is to say that you have one key that has special right. It's the owner key of the account. It's the one that can trigger transaction to try, you know, transfer assets, interact with dApps, and so on. But because you can program the account, you can add other keys on that account. And this key or other signers. And these signers, they cannot trigger transaction. They cannot transfer token. They cannot do anything, but they can only help you and they can only do one security action, which is the recovery. And so the flow is, as a user, you suddenly you know, lose your primary key. What you do is you contact the holders of, of this guardian key, and collectively, they can give you back access and reprogram the account to have a new key. So it, it's really like the model that you have today with your bank. With your bank, if you lose your credit card, you actually call your bank, and you ask your bank to send you a new one. And to reprogram your account such that the new cards control, you know, can spend the fund on the account. Social recovery is exactly the same, except that you choose who act as your bank. 
So it can be a centralized service that you trust, and you will authenticate to that service with an email and a password or with a, you know, a, 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 an SMS, for example. But it can also be friends that you trust, or it can be yourself with a hardware wallet, or it can be a combination of all those. And they will need to have a majority of these, you know, of these guardians accepting the, the recovery. So you are 100% in control with recovery. It's, it's, it's a no-brainer. And I personally believe that it is more safe. I, 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 tr I trust more, for example, my setup on Arjun is a centralized service, the Arjun service that we provide. It's myself with a hardware wallet, and then it's a friend who has Arjun as well. And when I need to do recovery, I just need to contact two of these parties. I personally trust that much more than having, you know, everything written on a piece of paper, which, of course, I won't remember exactly where it is and have a 50% chance, you know, to have it lost if I don't put, put in a safe. So social recovery is 100% secure, that's for sure. Uh, and for me, I personally think that it is more secure than a seed phrase. I think something that people underestimate is that security is not the 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 core principle per se, it's about the user experience of security. So yes, a seed phrase, it's extremely secure if you can and you are fully in control, if you can manage that, if you have perfect process and so on. But the thing is the majority of people don't. And so that makes it less secure. While I think social recovery for me is the perfect trade-off between you know, convenience and true security. It is extremely secure because everything is written at the level of your account. It's really on-chain in the blockchain. All that logic is programmed, you know, in your account. But at the same time, it's very easy to understand because it's the mental model that we are used to with any account that we have online. And so I think it's the perfect combination of true security and convenience, which in the end make it, you know, very, uh, <clears throat> very safe uh, solution. Of course, uh, some people will say, oh, the smart contracts, smart contracts have bugs. Yes, smart contracts have bugs, but then again, writing good smart contract is a question of process. You know, when you take a plane, you basically put your life at the end of a computer because the plane is being, you know, piloted by a computer and nobody questions that because we know they had good process in place and actually these, these computer software are extremely secure. Again, so you can write extremely secure smart contract and that comes from having good process having your code transparent so that anybody can inspect, you know, having audit, you know, doing, I mean, all the, all the tools that, that are available. But yes, for me, it's a, it's a no-brainer, smart contract wallet, and it's just like social recovery. It makes actually self-custody much safer for users. I feel like I say it all the time on this podcast, but I just love the, the idea of uh, making crypto easier to access, right? Because today, you know, it feels sort of easy at times for people like us that spend all day every day uh, in the depths of DeFi. But the reality is it's not. And uh, so I love the idea of social recovery and bringing that to, uh, to the space. Um, but does the does account abstraction uh, or use of like a contract wallet change any privacy assumptions? Uh, we can talk about privacy. I just want to add uh, one thing about security, which I think is extremely important. So it is uh, um, the when 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 you when you're looking at security, like what what problems can be introduced by this new technology, you also have to look at the same time what problems will be removed and what's the balance on the uh, on, on on the outcomes. You know, you can, you can look at the self-driving cars and see some crashes of those cars and be like, oh, how can I try to, uh, how, how can I trust a self-driving car to, to drive me home safely? But if you look at the 
per mile accident rate of the self-driving cars, it's a lot less. Like for every accident that happens there, hundreds are prevented for uh, like that, that would have otherwise happened by people who are driving the cars. Um, the situation with the counter obstruction here is uh, uh, is extremely skewed towards protecting the users. Like I can't really think of, you know, like be, I, I can't remember any any security incident happening with uh, with any of the counter obstructed or like any s- smart contract wallets being at Argent or Safe or you know like or, or any others that existed. But the number of ways in which you can increase security for the end users is enormous. So the, it's, it's important that not only you are secure like most of the time, it's really like you want to give users a sense that they are secure all of the time, that they can make mistakes and these mistakes are not going to be deadly for them. They should not be afraid to sign a transaction because like they know that this transaction can take all of the money from them. With account abstraction, you can implement guards. You can implement some, you know, checks in the beginning at the end of transaction that will say like, it will only succeed if only this token is being touched, and like my final balance for this token is is not more than, you know, hundred less than whatever amount you, you you're trying to spend or like uh, authorize for this particular transaction. So this is one example with with social recovery. It's not only important that you can do social recovery. It's important that all the uh, all the guardians that you appoint, all the people who you trust, can also do social recovery in a very easy way. So they will not lose their accounts, which you rely on. Vitalik recently wrote a post about uh, UX and his experiences with social recovery done in a uh, in a worse way with secret sharing. And it turned out in the case where he needed to recover a wallet, all the people or like some of the people were not available because they they lost their seed phrases because it was not convenient. So Julian uh, brought up multiple times the the example of PGP versus a signal or PGP is a like massively superior technology from the point of view of privacy preservation, but signal is much more convenient and it also offers you end-to-end encryption. And so it, it, it took off and PGP did not despite many, many more years of advantage. So coming back to the question of privacy, uh, account abstraction will be a necessary part in implementing privacy preserving protocols on Ethereum and all the uh, Ethereum scaling solutions. The reason for this is that for privacy, you fundamentally need to change the paradigm, change the way you think about the user experience. With any privacy preserving protocols, you need to separate the keys to, to like authorize changes of your account from a secret and commitment to the secret which you ha- hold on chain. So you, you have to keep some secret to yourself. And in order to be able to replace this secret, you need separate keys that will be, you know, like if, you, you need to have to preserve the continuity of your address, but you also need the ability to rotate the keys because those are going to be the keys that if you lose them, you will lose all of the insight into what, what's the state of your account, of your privacy applications, and you will not be able to recover them. So like th- there, are, there are multiple UX challenges around privacy, and you just need code. You just need smart contracts. You need some programmable logic in order to implement them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And like even thinking from, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time on Dune analyzing data. So like using the example, if I was looking at uh, users that have interacted with uh, a Uniswap pool, let's say, 
would a smart contract wallet still have that same like uh you know from address when i'm looking at a, a user that's made a swap through a pool yeah it will feel exactly the same way except for um the part of actually verifying authorizing transactions and paying fees exciting so even if i was using uh like a paymaster right so someone else was or another address was making the payment on top of uh for, for my transaction uh would that still kind of have that same ux as well correct the you, your, your interaction with the paymaster smart contract that is paying for the transaction to the validators of the transaction is separate from the actual transaction that originates in your account and goes towards the protocol you want mm. to so you can think of it as, as two separate transactions one is going and doing the uniswap trade and then one is going to a separate account and and paying the fees or maybe uniswap contract itself will be paying fees and you like, you know it offers it guarantees you that you're only paying a percentage of your, of your trade and then whatever fees are currently in the market they are um covered by the treasure of the protocol which is also a nice user experience because you you have a guaranteed like it's it's very similar to how you would trade on centralized exchanges or like Robinhood app. Now, something that gets me super excited about account abstraction is uh, when looking at stable coins, you know, that's kind of proven to be one of crypto's killer use cases with over $100 billion of stable coins in the middle of a bear market. So uh, could you um, kind of describe how uh, stable coins and account abstraction could, could work together to really enable crypto rails payments? And then Alex, I know you guys had a cool event at, at ETH Denver that had something of the sorts on display. So maybe kick it over to you to start. Sure. So with while stable coins are important is because it's very hard to explain to ordinary people what is Ether, what is gas, why I need several tokens. You know, like it, you, you create a whole space of mental models that needs to be filled before the person even can start using some application. Whereas compare that to an experience of I just send you, you know, like you're new to crypto and I say, look, I'll send you $100 to play with. Give me your like, give me your address. Just download this app. You will see the address, and you can invite me. I'll send you some hundred virtual dollars. You know, you don't have to understand any of that. You you just like okay. Then you see like the value is hundred USDC or or Dai or USDT or whatever, which corresponds to hundred dollars. Fine. Now you can just send it to someone, or you can go and buy an NFT, or you can go and interact with protocols, and then you will pay fees as a percentage of that. That's a super simple model to understand. So I had an experience with a friend of mine received a payment for some consulting work he, he did in crypto. Like he, he downloaded the wallet and he was sent 1000 USDC. And he was, he called me and said like, look, I'm trying to, to send it to an exchange to, to, to transfer it to my bank account. And I can't because I, it says that I need to pay the fees in ether. And, I, and like, it says I don't like not enough funds, but I have $1,000. Like, how is it not enough funds? And I'm like, well, you, you have, you need some ether to be able to pay for this transaction. He was like, yeah, I figured that out already. So I tried to swap this USDC into Ether to pay guest, but it says I, I don't don't have enough uh, funds to, to to make the swap. So it's kind of this catch 24, 22 loop, which which is you know like which is very hard to explain, and like most people will fail it. Just left alone with this. Uh, you stable coins being able to pay fees is a fraction of like whatever token you're transacting with solves the problem and paves the path for. Uh, for, for much easier experience on the protocol. Julian, I'm curious, do you have anything to add to that? 
No, I, I, I love the example that, that Alex gave. And again, at Arjun, you know, we if for those who've used Arjun, you realize that you can pay in ERC20 tokens because being a smart contract wallet, that, that very loop that Alex mentioned, that complexity, unnecessary complexity, we identified it right away. And so uh, even though we were not using directly the paymaster as defined in ERC4337, because we had our own implementation of that entire meta transaction part, but we've had lots of users who were just, you know, paid the transaction in DAI, meaning that they only had DAI in their account. And that was sufficient. Exactly like Alex mentioned, you don't need to think about having a, another currency uh, to make your transaction. The, the way I see it as well, I think, is that account abstraction is really a way to abstract not only accounts, but the complexity and the friction of interaction, interacting with blockchain, abstracting the protocol. Because again, as a user, you don't care about the protocol, you care about the application, the user experience. And so for me, ETH is actually a part of the protocol. It's only there to pay transaction fee to the miner. That's really at that base layer, but normal and majority of, of, of users shouldn't care about that, that lower level of, of the protocol. They only care about the application. In this case, the application is having a currency, having dollars in your account and making payments. So yeah, I think, I mean, again, being able to sponsor transaction or to pay transaction in stablecoin is a very important use cases of, of account abstraction. Yeah. But, but I, I think like to, yeah, was going to say to extend on that, that's one. But I think the ability to sponsor transaction is another important one. I think in the future, you know, DAP may want to, you know, pay the transaction fee of, of the five, first five transactions of users on their platform, for example. I mean, there's a lot of model that, that will come, um, you know, uh, and that can be enabled because you have account abstraction and you can never pay master. At Argent, when we started, we believed that users shouldn't have to pay transaction fees. The same way that if you go on an application on Web2, you actually don't pay the cost of the AWS server that's running the application. You come to an application and maybe you pay because there's a business model, but you don't see all that, that base layer of, of the interaction. And we felt it was it should be the same on Ethereum. So we started by by sponsoring transaction. You know, I think there will be a lot of lot of use cases like that 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 will be enabled because you have the ability to either sponsor or pay transaction fees in a, in a different token. I think we'll again see a, a, an entire design space, and that will enable and trigger a lot of innovation. I, I just wanted to add the exact same thing and say that uh, I'm really curious to see of uh, at, at all the creative ways people are going to use in account abstraction. Like not all the straightforward examples that we're always using, but like really pay the fees. If you're the, the first hundred minters of this NFT collection, then fees are going to be covered for you. Or if you own this NFT, you're a member of this club and all the transactions are going to be covered for, for you Like or, or, or this DAO then the transactions are going to be covered for you by the dollar treasury. Or um, you're paying for some goods and services and like starting with certain amount, transactions are going to be free for you. Just like shipping is free for you if you purchase something on Amazon starting at certain certain price. Uh, you know, like all, all this, like in unconventional ways where you can program things that look at certain properties of the user, of the transaction, of the interaction itself, take them into account and decide on, how um, how this is going to be taken into uh, you know in, in, in consideration for uh, by the paymaster? 
One thing that is another uh, kind of like an unlock with account abstraction that I don't think we've hit on yet is, is session keys or the idea of signing, um, you know, signing transactions for a given period of time, which anybody who played some of the OG crypto games, maybe like DeFi Kingdoms, uh, you know, signing a transaction after every time you interacted with a part of the game is one of the most brutal experiences. Uh, is there anyone that's using session keys in a really exciting way that uh, maybe you guys have spoken with or, or uh, helped build? Yeah, I mean, I can comment on that. Funny story, again, we kind of had the idea of session keys, I think, in 2018, and we implemented in, you know, in the Argent Argen wallet on Ethereum. Nobody cared. Uh, and by the way, our implementation was not that efficient. And then the smart guy, uh, Ethereum, more or less at the same time, they were also building a smart contract wallet. They kind of improved on, on our design. Uh, but again, we call them DAP keys. Nobody cared. I don't think not a single user, you know, <laughs> use, use that. Uh, and so now that you know, we are kind of bringing back these IDs because they are now much more affordable uh, because of, of layer twos. Um, we have uh, we've seen some some use cases in in on-chain gaming for the moment in the Starknet ecosystem because you know that we have an implementation of session keys on on Starknet. We are yet to make that happen on zk -Sync. One of the main reasons is that. Uh, on, on StackNet, we have a, a browser extension, which is much more developer focused. And so we kind of gave, you know, tools for developers to, to mess around. Uh, and for the moment on, on ZKSync, we have our mobile application, which supports ZKSync era. And by the way, that's an announcement I should make that we are supporting ZKSync era in the, you know, the Argent mobile application. For the moment, only available for developers. But so if there are developers, you know, working on ZKSync era, feel free to, you know, ping me. Uh, and we'll get you on board it. Uh, but so anyway, yes, there are some games that are experimenting with uh, session keys. I think for me, a killer combination is actually session keys with multi-call. Uh, because so the idea of session keys is that a DAP or a game will basically create a key locally during the session. There will be some constraint associated to that key and the account will authorize that key. So for example, a game will say, I want to authorize a session key for 20 minutes. And the key can only call this and that contract and this and that method. As a user, you approve. This is all happening on chain. So all these constraints, these policies, they are really at the level of, of your account on chain. And after that, the, the DAP, in this case, the game, can make direct transaction to your account. So it no longer needs to call your wallet. You see a pop-up, you approve. So every on-chain action is actually transparent to the user. And users can really focus on the game. So that's, of course, that's fantastic. But I think there's a trade-off to find. People imagine that they will send transaction every 10 seconds, even though, you know, even if layer twos are very cheap, this is probably not going to happen. So what we are seeing on, on, on Starknet for the moment is that is game developers combining that with multi-call. So when you play the game, they will basically stack, you know, transaction with the session key, say for one, two or three minutes uh, in a multi-call. And then at the end of that, that period, two, three minutes, they basically send all these transactions and they reconcile the, the state. So you kind of combine the best of both worlds. You are not making too much transaction, which is really inefficient and will end up being costly, even if it's a layer two. Uh, but, at, but at the same time, you can really benefit from, from that amazing experience. And if for some reason something goes wrong, you are only losing, say, a minute of your game because every minute your, you know, your game reconciles all these these small transactions. So again, I think this, I mean, session keys are, I believe, required for on-chain games, uh, but I think they will be required for other stuff. But then again, for me, we see that as, a, as an unlocker of, of possibilities. 
if you give smart developers new tool to play with, I think they will use them in ways that we are not even thinking of. Uh, and the example of combining session keys with multicode, I think, is something we did not anticipate. But I think there will be much more, you know, amazing use cases unlocked by by technologies like that. Is there a lot of different implementations of account abstraction? Like the, let's say the one that's native to Starknet and then also the one that's native to, to ZK Sync era. Like, do we think that this is kind of like proof systems and that everyone just kind of building and innovating in different ways and eventually we'll settle on a unified format or is it kind of apples and oranges in that respect? That's a good question. I'll let Alex comment on that. But from our, our point of view of developers, what we are seeing, I think, is that a lot of people agree ERC4337 is actually a great architecture. Account abstraction is actually very complicated. When you start digging, it's not complicated to understand. But if you want to make it right, if you want to make sure you don't, don't open, you know, DDoS act like vector for the protocol and so on, it's actually complicated to get it right. And the previous attempts of account abstraction, the previous EIPs that tried to do so, they always had some of the, they were unlocking some of the possibilities of account abstraction, but not all of them. And 4337 really finds the correct tuning, I think is the correct approach and the correct architecture. Uh, but again, as I mentioned, I don't think 4337 is the end of the road, but because it answers most of the question and, you know, basically found solution for the main of, majority of difficulties, layer twos can be inspired by 4337 and simply taking one level down. And so the implementation of account abstraction of ZK Sync is not exactly the same, but it's very, very similar to the one that Starknet is doing because they are both taking 4337 as is and bringing it one layer down. So they might be a few few differences here and there, but 95% is, is the same. And conceptually, is the same for developers, which I think is really good. So what I believe is that it's kind of a no-brainer that all layer twos on Ethereum will, will adopt account abstraction. And if they bring it natively, it will be some variation of ERC4337. So they will be very, very similar with, with, with small differences. At that point, it would be, of course, of course, great to have some kind of a standard and make sure they are, you know, equivalent from a developer's point of view. Will that happen? I don't know. But what is sure is that they will be, in my opinion, they will be equivalent up to, you know, some minor differences. But, but globally, they will be very, very similar. Alex, do you have any thoughts there? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that... Uh... We will converge. So we were working very closely with Ethereum Foundation on on uh, following. Like our protocol follows largely the design of EAP four three three seven, with only minor deviations that were necessary to actually implement it natively at, uh, on the protocol level. And uh, we, as uh, Julian said, uh, some of these changes were taken back by Ethereum Foundation. They realized it's uh, uh, it's a good addition to the protocol. So we, we we expect the protocols to cooperate and eventually come up with a single standard. Awesome. Well, that's all the questions I had for you guys today. Thank you guys so much for coming on and being generous, generous with your time. Do you guys want to take a second uh, to share with the audience where they can find out more about your projects and, and yourselves? Julian, I can kick it over to you first. Yeah, I mean, uh, love people, you know, to to experiment native account abstraction today. So go to www.argent.xyz and there you'll get, you know, access to our different products. And specifically for ZK Sync, if you are building on ZK Sync era, ping me, you know, over 
over Twitter or get access to us because we want to give access to, to, to dApps so they can really start you know, building uh, and see what experience they can build with account abstraction today. Uh, so again, if you're building on ZKSync era, contact Arjun and we'd love to give you access to your, our, our mobile application and get you started building. And for us, you can find us on Twitter under ZKSync and uh, our website is zksync.io. You will find all contact information there and you can follow us on, on social networks. And I want to share also that we're still actively hiring after raising a, a significant Series C very recently. So we're really well capitalized. We're, we're, we're not laying off and not, not going to lay off anyone. We're growing steadily but slowly. If you are an engineer with experience in smart contracts, security, and building um, protocols, especially protocol design, especially senior engineers, or even the Rust engineer, or you have experience in, in consensus mechanisms, and you want to help us scale Ethereum, uh, please contact us. You will find the, the information on our website. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. We'll catch you guys later.